0: Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachub, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. According to Michael Easter, our world is one giant slot machine. And he's not just saying that because he lives in Las Vegas, like the slots, our lives are largely sedentary, unpredictable, and they go by fast. So how do we slow down the game so we can all win? Michael is a journalist, a New York Times bestselling author, and the founder of the 2% newsletter, which is one of my personal favorites. And in today's show, he discusses how to reintroduce yourself to moderation, why nature is organic Xanax, how to rock your way to better health, the power of going outside your comfort zone, and so much more. It is a fascinating conversation, and it will certainly make you think deeply about your everyday routines. So why do we struggle so much with moderation?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the big question. Uh, here's how I'll answer it. Moderation never made sense for the vast history of humanity. Right? So for all of time, humans were evolving in these landscapes for everything we needed to survive from food to stuff to information to status. It was all scarce. It was all hard to find. And so if you were the type of person who craved those things, and when you got the opportunity to overdo them, to not moderate at all, that would give you a survival advantage. Those people survived, they passed their genes on, and we still have those genes, except the big difference now is that uh, we live in a world where all these things we're built to crave are abundant. They're easily accessible, they're cheap, they're easily consumable, they're manufactured, and um, it's just basically a mismatch between our our genes and our environment, really.
0: So walk us through those buckets, if you will. I'm guessing that Processed foods is well, I know I'm not guessing. Is is it is one of them? What what else is on that list?
1: Yeah, food food is a really big and obvious one. You know, for most of the time, food was scarce. The food we were eating was this single ingredient, boring stuff that we would hunt and gather. Um, and now we have these you know f- formulated food products that just condense calories and fat and sugar and salt, all these triggers that lead us to overeat. And I mean, we have so much food that we throw out about a third of it. You know, information. So, one of the wild stats I found when I was reporting this book, uh, The Scarcity Brain, is the average person today sees more information in one day than a person 700 years ago would have seen in their entire life. Their entire life. (laughs) Like, that is wild. I mean, we just have, you know, we evolved to crave information because if you, knew say if a storm was rolling in if you knew what the tribe down the river was doing what their intentions were all these different things you could you would survive but now we really have this information itch that we can scratch on twitter that we can go down internet rabbit holes that we can you know get through all these different screens uh what else do we have we have status well
0: on on that note even if i go back i'm thinking 30 years ago pre-internet if you wanted information you read the newspaper and maybe you watch the nightly news. So, okay, that's probably 15, tw- 15 minutes, 20 minutes. You're skimming the newspaper. Maybe you're reading it if you're commuting on a train. And then maybe you watch the nightly news for a half hour. And that's kind of your information for the day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's how it was. Um, and that's even, that's like 200 years of time. Even before that, it was just like, who, the, who knows what's going on anywhere else? Like you're just in your immediate... <laughs> All you know is your immediate surroundings and these sort of oral traditions that have been passed down for thousands of years, right? Yeah, to your point, now you can go down rabbit holes and know what's happening up to the second. You know, you get alerts on your phone all day of quote unquote breaking news that it's like, um, yeah, it's just a constant hammering of information. So status is a good one too. Most researchers think that humans evolved in these small groups of people that were no more than 150 people. And so you kind of knew your place in the tribe. You knew what people's intentions were. You kind of knew who was the high status person and who wasn't. You could only interact with so many people. And, you know, like the world of social media has really put status at scale and it quantifies it in terms of likes and follower counts. And you can interact with all these different people all the time. Um, What else do we have? What did I mention?
0: Well, on stat, can we double click on status for a second? Is there or was there a benefit to having higher status?
1: Oh, totally. And there still is. So generally, people who had higher status um, would get more food, for example. They wouldn't have to do sort of menial work that burned calories. They had greater access to mates. So there's all these evolutionary reasons. And if you even look at it today, people who are higher status generally have better health outcomes. and so, people will often think, oh, well, that's just because they have more money and better access to healthcare. And it's like, well, no, because this holds true for countries that have universal healthcare, where all the healthcare is the same. And this goes back to stress, basically. People who are a lower st- status generally have more stress and stress is associated with all these bad outcomes. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Stuff. <laughs> Stuff is, a, I mean, having more possessions in the past would have given you a survival advantage if you think of tools, right? And now I mean just think of Amazon Prime it's like to your point about the newspaper 30 years ago like the newspaper if you wanted to buy something you would have had to uh get in your car or in your in your case you were living in the city so you'd have to take the train um go down to the store walk the aisles look for the right item buy it get it home like there's a barrier to entry and now it's just I think I might need a thing Amazon Prime bam it's to your house and I mean, sometimes less than 24 hours.
0: They have so much share of our wallet in our household in terms of, you know, we love Whole Foods and we don't have a lot of time. My wife and I work a lot. We've got two little kids. It's Amazon Prime. Boom. Get everything. So in that way, it's it's fantastic. But uh, I hear you. There's We have something that we think about with our children is sometimes if something's not delivered immediately, they're like upset. They're confused. And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This isn't how the world used to work.
1: Yeah, totally. So, uh, if you look at a lot of the you know research from like the 1700s, like the average person, for example, had about three outfits. The average person today has about 130 outfits, and our homes contain anywhere from 10,000 to 50,000 items on average. You know, homes in the past would have had, you know, you got your house, you got a handful of kitchen tools. Um, you know, you have a family Bible, you got some chairs, you got a table, you got a couple outfits each and you're good to go. And now it's like this influx of, um, possessions, which like, let me be clear that all these things I'm talking about, um, this is a, probably a good thing in the grand scheme of time and space, right? Like I want to live in a world where (laughs) my problem is that there's too much food around rather than too little. I'd rather have the ability to have more items that help me live better rather than just like not be able to get enough of them. Um, but at the same time, we still have these genes that work against us. So we need to like constantly be aware of it. Like we live in this amazing time period, but if you just kind of lean into your next impulse to eat more, to buy more, to spend more time on social media, whatever it is, um, that can catch up with you, let's say. So what are the
0: consequences? And I'll touch on some key themes in the book. Is it We become really bad at being bored. Is it we become too comfortable? Is it it, it, is it affecting our quality of life? Is it all of the above? Like, why are all that? Why is all this ultimately bad for our well-being?
1: Yeah, I think that it um, it definitely affects quality of life and health. It's kind of all of the above. So, if you think about, I mean, the food example, I'd say most chronic diseases are tied to our food system and overconsumption. Of course, not all of them, but very uh, and many of them are. For example, I mean, heart disease wasn't really a thing until the late 1800s when we started getting more and more food after the industrial revolution. Now it's the biggest killer of humans worldwide. I think when you look at um, mental health, I think there's some pretty strong evidence suggesting that mental health problems are rising. And are a sort of relatively new phenomenon. I think that's just because the way we live is often at odds with how we always lived in the past. So we spend so much more time uh, indoors and not outside. We don't spend as much time um, with other people. We're not as physically active. And we know that physicality, I mean, it, it uh, has a, a direct relationship with mental health. Like exercise improves mental health, and sometimes as much as SSRI SSRIs in some cases, and so I think if you just you just look at this sort of long trudge we've been taking to make our world easier, more comfortable, with more of all these things that we're sort of built to crave, it hasn't always been a good thing. There have been repercussions, and so I think navigating this is the question everyone's kind of dealing with.
0: So a couple of things I'd like to unpack. You mentioned mental health and heart disease, and we have a loneliness epidemic. We know these things drive the quality of one's mental health and can also drive heart disease. Uh, Obviously, food and lifestyle play a significant role there as well. Something I thought was so interesting from you in the book, can, can you talk about the difference between being lonely versus being alone?
1: Yeah. So I think the easiest way to think about this is loneliness is I would like to spend more time with people, but I don't have the ability to because I don't have those relationships. Whereas being alone, or um, I sometimes use the language solitude, this is spending time alone on purpose to sort of get to know yourself, to understand what it's like to be without others. And so when you look at, uh, when you look at history, there's a lot of really great examples of people using time alone, solitude, like consciously choosing time alone to learn a lot of important things about themselves. It's like, no, it's not always comfortable to be alone. But um, some of our greatest scientific discoveries have been when people were in seclusion. When the sort of, you know, all these different uh, religious leaders wanted to like sort of get to the bottom of themselves and understand themselves better. What did they do? They would usually go out into the wilderness for an extended period of time alone. And so I think that um, sort of the big takeaway for the average person is that you know i think you need we absolutely need to be working to develop strong social bonds and those relationships but i also think that today it's very easy to never ever be alone and know what that's like because even if you go hey i'm going to my room to be alone you go on your phone and you're with you're with all your followers you watch tv and you're with you know bear grills or whatever you're <laughs> whatever you're watching <laughs> and so i think having time where you're just totally alone and understand what that's like and you kind of get down to the root of who you are what you believe in what you stand for kind of go through that not always easy but i think it is an important um, part of uh, building sort of a foundation of of being a strong human if you will
0: so i'm assuming for somebody who wants to get started there it could be as simple as just a brief meditation with with in silence alone or taking a walk in nature, but not checking your phone.
1: Yeah, I think those are two great examples. I really like the nature without uh, the phone example. In my last book, The Comfort Crisis, I talk about some really interesting research on the mental health benefits of nature. And one of the big takeaways from all that is, and the, the researcher I spoke to actually studied this, when people bring their phone into nature uh, and spend time on it, they don't get any of the benefits of nature because they're not really in nature. You're in the office. If you're on your phone, you're kind of like mentally in the office, and your focus isn't out on the open world of nature, and it uh, just sort of negates the benefits.
0: Tell us more. You've gone as far as saying, and I love this: nature is organic Xanax. Tell us more about the science behind the benefits of being in nature.
1: Yeah. Well, I started thinking about this because um, in the comfort crisis, I spent more than a month in the Arctic on this uh, in the backcountry, and you know, it's a it's a pretty extreme and dangerous place, and you know, you, people are like, oh, you must've been, you know, stressed out the entire time. You must've been freaking out. It's like, well, yeah, sometimes there was some, you know, harrowing moments. Like when you see a grizzly bear or like, you have to like cross a mountain pass or whatever. But the reality was, is I was more calm, collected, less stress, less stressed than I'd ever been. I'm, I'm just like, oh man, the, the world is just beautiful. And I love everyone in it. Right. Like, and so I want to know why that is. So when I get home, uh, I end up traveling to Boston and I meet with this uh, lady whose name is Rachel Hopman. And she basically studies the human brain on nature. And she's got this idea uh, called the nature pyramid. And there's other groups of scientists who are working on this. And it basically tells uh, tells us how much time we should spend in different types of nature. So you can kind of think of it like the food pyramid where it says like eat this many grains and this many servings of meat or whatever, but with nature. So at the bottom of the pyramid is uh, 20 minutes three times a week in the type of nature that you could find in like a city park. That's associated with decreases in stress and increases in creativity and productivity. Now, the second rung up is five hours a month, five hours a month in the type of nature that's a little more off the grid. So like a state park. So you might be on a trail, but you still have cell reception. That's associated with increases in happiness and decreases in depression. And then at the very top is three days a year, in the back country. So this is like no cell reception. You might have to hike in. That's associated with some really um, important changes in the human brain. So this lady has actually uh, brought sort of brain scanning devices out there. And she finds that after three days in the back country, people start to ride what are called alpha waves. And these are these waves that are also found in experienced meditators. So they're associated with calm, the feelings of collectedness, connectedness, all these good qualities we want people to have. And, When people leave the wild and go back home, um, these feelings of benefits, they don't necessarily wash off. So they tend to stick around for a while. So now there's uh, follow-up research where groups are looking to see if extended time in nature could be a good treatment for PTSD in vets and other groups. Why do you think this works
0: so well? If you had to guess.
1: Uh, I mean, there's a lot of theories. I'll say that's sort of 30,000. So I'll tell you the 30,000, what I think the 30,000 foot view is. And then I'll tell you some of the things this researcher told me 30,000 foot view is that humans evolved in nature. That's the environment we're adapted to. You know, we were outdoorsy in the sense that we. We're camping every single freaking day of our lives, (laughs) right? If you want to kind of get into the details, one reason might be that in nature, you are in uh, fractals is what you're saying. So nature is made up of these things called fractals. These are repeating patterns of the universe, sort of. So if you think about like a a little river to a medium river to a big river, right? Or if you think about like the construction of a a snowflake or a, a tree or things like that, we don't have fractals in the built environment. Like, they're just not really part of it. But in nature, they totally make up nature. And there's some research that suggests fractals are very calming for people. One study that I loved is uh, University of Oregon researchers. uh, They discovered that Jackson Pollock's paintings are made up of fractals. That might might be why people love them so much.
0: Ah, interesting.
1: Um, Also, the sounds of nature are different. Uh, Also, when you're in nature, you're usually walking around, which is... Which is good, right? There's just all these different reasons, I think.
0: So on the flip side, there are cities. Not so good for our health and well-being.
1: Yeah, not so good. Yeah, no fractals. The The scents are, are not good. It's not nice piney scents. It's, you know, garbage. Uh, <laughs> sounds much louder. And um, yeah, there's a, there's a theory called the Savannah Theory of Happiness. And it basically found that the higher the population, density of where you live, the higher the chances uh, that you'll be unhappy.
0: Interesting. So you know you mentioned exercising and ideally exercising outside. For people who are familiar with you, you are a huge fan of rucking. Mm-hmm. Tell us more. What is so fantastic about rucking?
1: Yeah, well, there's many things. I mean, first of all, rucking is just walking with a weighted backpack. So it sounds very simple, but it it's a form of carrying, carrying weight. Now humans physically evolved to do two things well. We evolved to run long distances in the heat. We're the only animal, or the animal that does that absolutely best. And we would use that for hunting. In the past, we would run down animals that are not good at cooling themselves, and we would spear them, and then we'd have dinner. And then we would uh, carry. We're the only animal that can carry weight for distance. And this absolutely shaped us into who we are. It allowed us to become apex predators. It allowed us to carry meat back to camp. It allowed us to gather. It allowed us to take tools into the unknown. So we have all these physical adaptations that that allow us to cover ground in the heat, often while carrying objects. And I think personally that sort of leaning into the type of exercise that we evolved to do can be uniquely good for us. So when you look at rucking, it's just a very approachable way to carry weight. And I like to think of it as uh, cardio and strength in one, because when you have weight in the pack, you're also working uh, your muscles to a greater degree than you would be if you were doing cardio alone, right? And I think especially for women, it's an amazing exercise because it tends to be the best exercise you can do to increase bone density. So especially after menopause, bone density starts to drop off in uh, women and this can lead to a higher risk of fractures. And if you fracture, say a hip after age, I think it's age 65, you basically have a 30% chance of dying in six months. So bone density is like a really important thing. And in order to maintain that and even grow it, I think rucking is a really uh, good entry point. It also has a lot lower risk of injury compared to running. So the injury rate is lower and it's also a lot more social. So if you've ever tried to run with someone that has a different fitness level than you, You're either going way too slow or you're just getting totally gassed out. But I think with rucking, so for example, I will ruck with my wife and she might take 10 or 20 pounds and I might take 45 and we're getting the same fitness effect going at the same speed, but ever able to have a conversation, able to connect all these different things. So I just, I just think it's a really important and great form of exercise that we should be doing more of.
0: According to the science or in your personal opinion, is there a minimum effective dose in terms of how many minutes or distance one should do in a week to experience the benefits?
1: Yeah, I wrote about this uh, on my newsletter, actually 2% the other day.
0: Great newsletter. Everyone, I'm a subscriber. Everyone should sign up.
1: (laughs) Thank you for uh, subscribing. So I talked to, when I was reporting the comfort crisis, I went to Harvard and I spent some time with this guy, Dan Lieberman, who I think is probably one of the smartest minds in exercise science. And You know, this is obviously very person dependent, but we started talking about, you know, weekly mileage and uh, running and carrying stuff. And he basically said that he feels best when he runs at least 13 miles a week. So when he gets in a total of 13 miles in a week of running, he feels best. And so I think the, the big takeaway for the listener is not you must cover 13 miles. But what I think it does suggest is that finding a, um, level of exercise that is your sort of ideal weekly dose and it's probably going to be more than the government recommends by the way um (laughs) is probably smart so when i for me with rucking if i do i feel best if i do 15 miles a week and that could be a combination i could do 10 miles of rucking say and then five miles of running whatever it might be but i think that finding some dose like that is probably going to be a good thing for most people
0: is that about like an hour a day
1: Yeah. I think it's, um, if you figure 20, that's like five days a week. Now, the thing that I want to point out about rucking though, too, is that it's so easy to weave into your life. If you have a phone call, you could throw on 10 pounds in the pack and take the phone call while you're walking and you're getting a benefit there. If you have to walk the dogs, it's like, all right, throw on a pack with a little bit of weight in it, and now you're getting more out of every step. So I think finding ways one of the big ideas I talk about in the newsletter is like, how do you find ways to weave more uh, physical activity into your life in a way that makes it almost effortless, right? So it's kind of sneaking it in.
0: Building off of that, you know, h- how do we know if we're too comfortable and need to get out of our comfort zone? How do we make ourselves? assess that properly and then you know do that harder more uncomfortable thing maybe it's rucking, maybe it's a cold plunge or maybe it's running
1: yeah I mean I think if you have any sort of <laughs> like run-ups to chronic disease that's usually a good sign um, but and I, I think for some people it's like all of a sudden they kind of they have a moment where they're like Oh, I need to change something in my life. And that sort of does it. But I think really it's just sort of about as humans, we kind of live in this like small space. We're kind of wired to do the next most comfortable thing, even when that doesn't serve us over the long haul. And so I think really the answer to living well today is being willing to do the slightly harder thing that's going to get you a long-term benefit right? The story, of dis, uh, the story of improvement today is being willing to sort of embrace short-term discomfort to get a long-term uh, benefit. And so I think just experimenting with that and realizing that as you do more things that challenge you, they're going to get slightly easier, but then you have an opportunity to, to push it even more, to push it even more. And then eventually you look back and people make these massive changes and it's almost like they didn't even know what was happening.
0: From a neurological perspective, you know, why are we overeating, overbuying, wanting too much of everything, making poor decisions, and in some cases, ultimately leading to addiction for some people?
1: I think it's complicated. I think with sort of big picture is that I don't think people do things irrationally. Like we make, (laughs) the, the problem that people face today is that we make decisions that benefit us in the short term often, but that harm us in the long run. So I'll give you the extreme example of addiction. You know, there's all these different arguments about what it is. Is it like a moral failing? Is it a brain disease? Is it, you know, there's been debates and all the sorts of research around this. And I think when you really peel back the onion, people who are in the grips of addiction use their substance of choice for a good reason, because it relieves their problems in the short term right? A lot of times you see trauma associated with addiction. It's like someone had something terrible to ha- happen to them and to cope with that, they started using drugs, right? And then you get so deep into it that now <laughs> the problem becomes when they can't get drugs, they start to have withdrawals, but the drugs provide a short-term solution to that, <laughs> right? So there's always going to be some benefits. So but the problem is, is that long-term problems pile up. And you can apply this at different magnitudes to all sorts of behaviors that hurt us in the long run right? Overeating. It's like overeating is fun in the short term, but if you do that all the time, you're going to get a, it's going to start to hurt you in the long run. So I think being willing to have to do this sort of hard thing that's harder in the short term, knowing you're going to get a long-term benefit is what's important and being willing to like make some big changes and, and deal with the sort of short-term suffering.
0: So you mentioned overeating. Can you walk us through what makes for a popular snack that is difficult for many to resist?
1: yeah it is uh (laughs) so as a part of this book the scarcity brain i went to this laboratory where uh, the casino industry has effectively built a real life working casino but they're using it entirely for human behavior research and just like that i mean the food industry has those laboratories everywhere i mean there's an insane amount of flavor scientists employed by the food industry And their job is to make foods as delicious as possible. I think you need sugar, you need salt, you need fat, and you need sort of texture. And the amount of research that goes into this is it's quite mind boggling and it's quite successful too. I mean, if you've ever eaten a Dorito, you know that like, wow, that's a delicious food, right? It's just this constant sort of shaving off. But what's interesting is that, you know, the combination of uh, carbs and fat doesn't really appear in nature. And it's a sort of relatively new thing that our brains just can't seem to get enough of.
0: So you mentioned the casino. You've talked a lot about slot machines in interviews. What can we learn from the slot machines?
1: <laughs> I think that the slot machine is a metaphor for life today. So slot machines work on this three-part system that I call the scarcity loop. And it's, it's, uh, the three parts are, it's a behavior loop, basically. So opportunity, Unpredictable rewards and quick repeatability.
0: Wait, wait, can you say that? What, sorry, opportunity. What was it again?
1: Uh, one is opportunity. Two is unpredictable rewards. And three is quick repeatability. So I'll, I'll kind of walk you through it. With opportunity, you have an opportunity to get something of value that enhances your life. So with slot machines, it's money. Uh, number two, unpredictable rewards. You know you'll get that thing of value at some point, but you aren't sure when and you aren't sure how valuable it's going to be. So with any given slot machine game, you could lose, you could win a dollar or two, or you could win thousands and thousands of dollars, right? There's this crazy range of outcomes. And then three, quick repeatability. You can quickly repeat the behavior. So with slot machines, the average slot machine player plays 900 games an hour over and over and over. Now, this is being studied in this casino laboratory I mentioned. Um, And the casino laboratory is not just funded by gambling companies. It's also funded by big tech companies and so it's like well why the hell do they care and it's like because if you can put this if you can put this thing in all sorts of different technologies and it'll get people to get hooked to like i see in las vegas sit on the machine whatever the machine is and repeat the behavior it reminds me of tiktok it's tiktok it's it's pretty much all social media works on the scarcity loop it's being put in dating apps it's it's in uh being put in personal finance apps as well to get people to do more trades so for example robin hood have you heard of that are you familiar with that trading sure so one of the reasons that really rose is that, that they increased the quick repeatability. They took away trading fees. And so once they took away trading fees, it allowed people to make quicker trades across the day, more or less, incentivize that. And they even had at one point a spinning wheel when you signed up, which is literally taken directly from slot machines. There's a, a game in slot machines called the big wheel game in casinos. Uh, but regulators made them take that down. They're like, no, this can't be an actual casino, guys.
0: If the scarcity loop is the killer of moderation and leads to many problems. And you've got large conglomerates who are sophisticated and use this to their advantage. What does one do? How do we go about our everyday lives and avoid this or try to minimize its impact?
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think you can avoid it. And (laughs) and I'll give you some hope, Uh, I'll explain this part later, but I think you can actually use this three part system for good. But the short answer is that in order to decrease behaviors that fall into this loop, you can change any three of the parts. So you can change whatever the opportunity is, um, you can change or take away the unpredictable rewards, or you can slow down the behavior. So I'll give you an example of slowing down the behavior. So with food, for example, Eating foods that have, that are minimally processed, that take longer to chew, and they take longer to eat, and they're more filling per calorie. And they f- researchers have found that just because of how much slower the eating process is, people tend to eat about 500 calories fewer a day when they're eating unprocessed foods compared to ultra-processed foods. You can also apply this logic to purchasing things. So for example, if you set a rule around your purchases going, okay, uh, I'm only going to buy things in person, or if I want to buy something online, I'm going to put a three-day, say, holding period where I then go revisit the cart and see if I actually need it. Or even the act of having to put in your credit card, not having your credit card information saved on every website, that will slow down the frequency of buying simply because you've inserted pause into uh, into the behavior. And I mean, this is demonstrated really well in slot machines when casinos changed from the physical handles they used to have that you would pull down to buttons that allow you to spin the reels. Gambling rates doubled. They went from 400 uh, spins a minute to not or spins an hour to 900 simply because it takes a while to pull the handle and there's more pause.
0: Well, I'm guessing... Are the slots the most profitable section of the casino?
1: Yeah, slot machines make more money than books, movies, and music combined. It's like thirty-six billion dollars every year in the U.S. Wow! Yeah, I should be uh, I should be designing slot machines, not writing books.
0: <laughs> how do slots? Do you know how slots compare to, say, card games or like blackjack, like other casino areas, parts of the floor?
1: Mm-hmm. odds wise, most card games are going to have better odds for the user now. So if, you know, if, uh, if you've ever been to Vegas or listeners have ever been to Vegas, like you can, if you walk through a casino, let's say you walk past some slot machines, they're going to have a lower minimum bet. Like your bet might be 50 cents and it's like, oh, that's cheap. Right. And you might walk past a, um, card table and like, just to play a single game of cards, it might be say $20 is the minimum. Well, the reason for that is because it take it might take a minute for a card game to happen. Whereas with a slot machine, you could play 40 games in that minute. And so they can charge a lot. The, the difference is like volume. They're basically just trying to draw out the volume and get you to slowly lose money over time.
0: Interesting. You know, I haven't been to Vegas in quite a long time, but I just remember it used to, I'd see a lot of older folks just kind of like park there and sit there all day and when i went to vegas i was in my 20s and you know it was, it was blackjack we all loved playing blackjack no one had interest in the slots at all i'm curious you live in las vegas of all places you don't li- live in the city you live in the outskirts of vegas do i have that right
1: yeah we live kind of on the edge of the desert but yeah i mean we're we're 20 minutes from the strip
0: so tell me more. I'm curious, like knowing so much about Las Vegas and how they manipulate, I'm curious, like 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 the, like, living in that area, it is beautiful. I think a lot of people think of Vegas and just a strip and, and that's it. But like Vegas is also beautiful. The, the outskirts are gorgeous. T- tell us more about you living in Las Vegas because we haven't had a lot of people on the show who live in the greater Las Vegas area.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I really love it. Uh, the town, the... I'm a very outdoorsy person we're right by red rock Canyon. So I have access to, I mean, just miles and miles of trails, you know, two a two minute walk from my doorstep. And it's also beyond being a great outdoor town. It's also like one of the best food towns in the country. And people don't realize that there was just, David Chang was just on a podcast and he said that Vegas is the best food town in America right now and it's because You've got all your famous, you know, whatever big name chefs on the strip, but um, the food surrounding it, um, Vegas is, it routinely gets named one of the most diverse cities in the country too. So there's just so many different types of food. The casino things, I really see casinos as like these big human behavior laboratories really. And, you know, I'm a person who like, I just like to observe people and I like to think a lot about human behavior and what makes uh, people tick. And make the decisions they do, and that is literally what casinos do all day as well, and they've just perfected the art and it's so fascinating to live in a town where you have four, more than 40 million people come in every single year. they're from all different demographics. you have billionaires who fly in on their private jets, you have people who come with a hundred dollars in their pocket and haven't even booked a hotel room yet, and they're all there for the same goal they're there to have a good time to hopefully uh, win some money to leave town with like an intense, fun experience.
0: On that note makes me think of expectations. How do you think about expectations and the role they play in our happiness?
1: Well, yeah, there's some, there's some research that I point out in the book that basically shows if you think you're going to get a thing and you get it, it's nice. If you get better than what you expected, oh my God, that's amazing. That is even better. But if you get less than what you expected, that is bad. thats That doesn't make people happy, even if it was still a good thing. So let's say it's a million dollars and it's like, okay, I think I'm going to get a million bucks. If I get 2 million bucks, it's like, oh, this is fantastic. If I get a million bucks, I'm like, great. It's what I expected. Cool. If I get 800,000 bucks, I'm like 800,000 this is ridiculous why did i only get this much money right it, like the expectations really um i think set our um yeah our happiness to what you pointed out
0: how do we go about living our lives if expect our expectations play a significant role like these are all great outcomes you've just outlined but if our expectations are out of whack there's a huge even though there's there's not much well, i would say that there, there's a There's a variable in terms of the outcome. They're all great outcomes, but one makes us, one outcome could be greater financially, but because of our expectations, we're actually more distraught about it.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of these things are also, so when I think about this, like I I think big picture in the average person's life is sort of social narratives. So people love comparing themselves to other people, right? If you look at, um, like, we just compare to what others have. Like, do I have enough? Well, how do we figure out if I have enough? You look at your neighbors.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but if you compare yourself to 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago, the average person, like we're way, like we are at the best point to ever be alive. But we don't necessarily realize that because we're programmed to look to our neighbors to make comparisons to the last example uh, we found. So in terms of sort of resetting that, I think that... uh I think this is where having experiences that give you perspective becomes really important. So, for example, when I reported the comfort crisis, I spent that month in the Arctic. And before I'd gone up there, I mean, there are all these things that I just took for granted in life that I'd never thought of. Hot running water. The fact that our house is heated. The fact that like, food isn't really hard to come by. All these different things. Once I went and spent a month in the Arctic and came back, it's like when hot running water first hit my hands, it was like, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever encountered in my life. So it's almost like because we're constantly making comparisons to situations we've been in, you almost need situations that push back on you and put you out of your comfort zone so you can recalibrate just like how good things are in the grand scheme of time and space.
0: Feels like volunteering is a great place to start for people who can't travel far to the antarctica per se
1: (laughs) yes totally i think uh i think volunteering is a is a great thing to do and you're helping others in the process and um even just going without things for a while is something that gets uh practiced in a lot of religions for a really good reason
0: yeah gratitude practice
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
0: so other than the book which i'll hold up which is fantastic scarcity rain everyone should should pick up everyone should buy the book what else should we do tomorrow to retrain our brain to be less comfortable, push ourselves, get out of our comfort zone, and ultimately be happier.
1: There's a lot of ways I could answer this. If I'm thinking um, tomorrow, okay, here's what I think. I think once a year, someone should go out, people should go out and do some task, physical task out in nature, that they think sounds uh, like they probably couldn't do it. So 50, 50 chance of failure. This is an idea that I talk about in the comfort crisis. Um, It's called Masogi. The idea is that, you know, humans used to have to do challenging hard things in the past all the time. And each time we would do one of those things, you would get like thrust out to the edges of what you thought you were capable of. And in turn, those edges would expand. So you become more capable, you become more confident. You would see what you were capable of. And we don't really have those moments in our lives anymore, right? You can like live just fine and never really be really deeply challenged to have to like figure your stuff out. And so I think we need to mimic that. And so the idea of Masogi is that you go out uh, once a year, you pick some task that you think you have a 50-50 shot at failure and you just see if you can see if you can finish it because you'll have moments where you think you're going to have to quit. You're like, you're definitely going to be sure you're going to have to quit. But if you can just go past that, you get this realization that like, maybe you sell yourself short in life. And that can be just like this incredible teacher for people. I mean, I've seen, since writing the book, I've had people reach out to me that are anywhere from, you know, 15 years old to 80 years old who've done this idea. And it's so individual too, right? It's like the, the 30-year-old Navy SEALs Misogi is going to be different than the 75-year-olds Misogi. But the idea is that it's hard for them and it's an individualized thing. And I think that can be a good teacher. And then on a, like a everyday practical level, I mean, I think that, um, trying to rock more is important. I think spending more time in silence is good for people. We live in just so much noise and being okay with, um, occasionally being hungry every now and then, like it's good for people to learn that hunger is an emergency (laughs) that they'll eventually get food. Yeah. I mean, I talk about a lot of different, uh, tactics and techniques in both books so
0: in the everyday, it's a reason why i've begun to love cold plunging i was very resistant to it for a long time don't like the cold don't like we moved to miami a lot you know i I have this memory in my head uh Mm -hmm. when i was a freshman in college we were playing sacramento state and we had to get on a red eye to fly back to new york and the showers were cold, and it's like this was the only opportunity. And I, I'm like, th- that moment, I had like a little minor PTSD from like the cold shower. I was just like, I had to do it. Like since then, I'm just like, cold water, and we're, we're not going to happen. Um, but I, I was resistant to it, and I finally started doing it. And it's like that uh, that 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 first thirty seconds to a minute of like real uncomfort when the heart rate spikes, and then you bring it back down I found to be really rewarding something I never would have done
1: and it's like you know that's a win for today and it's like all right if you can do that like what else can you sit with even if it even if it sucks as you sit with it whether it's work whether it's um a tough conversation whether I mean that, that sort of the metaphor applies to a lot I would imagine
0: yes 100% uh We've covered a lot of ground today. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to cover or any words of wisdom you'd like to leave our audience with?
1: Um, I don't think so. Probably best place to find my stuff is on my newsletter. That's at twopct.com. And yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much. And uh, I'll see you in Vegas. We see the Grateful Dead together, maybe. Dead and company.
1: Yeah, we got to get it on the books. I'm looking forward to it, man.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Michael.
1: Yeah, thank you.